the story that I'm looking at this morning is so important. I'm going to move to the middle. It's so important that it's retold in the very next chapter as well. So it's told in chapter 10 by, uh, by Luke. And then in chapter 11, Peter kind of, in his own words, retells the story. So whenever that happens in the Bible, just to give you a bit of a hint, if something is told more than once, now it's important if it happens once, but if it's shared again, it's kind of a tool that the author is using to show you, actually this is something that if you've missed it the first time, you really don't want to miss it the second time. And that's kind of what happens here in Acts chapter 10. And so over this week and next week, I'm going to be in this kind of section and this story, because I think it's so important for what we do as a church today as well. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit of it. It's, it's long, so I'm just going to read uh, the vision section of what uh, Acts chapter 10 says. So reading from verse 9, it says, The next day they were on their journey and approaching the city. Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, uh, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate, and called out to, have, to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise, go down, and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your arms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord.
It's an amazing story actually, and although there's the Ethiopian eunuch, which is earlier on in Acts, this is generally regarded as the first non-Jewish person to come to faith in Christ. That's generally how the interpreters look at it. This is a significant moment where not just one man, but one man's family, so down to young kiddos presumably, uh, come to faith in Jesus Christ. And... um, If you kind of imagine in the day, the Jewish people that would be reading this, this is kind of groundbreaking. Because for Jews, God was their God and that was it. They were the special people. Nobody else could be in. Cornelius the centurion, he wasn't welcome. How could he be saved? Only if you were Jewish. And I'm thankful that that's not the case today, because guess what? I'm not Jewish. And the majority of you probably aren't Jewish too. So without this passage, and without this understanding and this vision that Peter has, we're kind of back at square one. But because of this passage, because of what God does in sending Jesus, as we'll see, uh, there's hope for us this morning as well. So the question this morning that's raised by this passage, and raised for us I think as a church is, how do I get right with God? How do I uh, walk in holiness? And what is it that as as a human being, in relationship to a holy God, what is it that will make me holy? What is it that I have to do that makes me right with God? How can I be pure? And they're good questions to ask, actually, aren't they? When you kind of self-reflect and you look at your own life to say, well, how can I be holy? What is it that I need to be doing in my life? And so we'll just go through the story. I don't have loads of points beginning with the same letter or anything like that. We're just going to go through the story. And as we do, hopefully there'll just be a few things that kind of just drop in and a few things that just speak to us about what it is about being right with God. The story starts in verse 1 in Caesarea, a man named Cornelius, who's a centurion uh, with the Italian cohort and we're told this about him he's a devout man who fears God with all his household he gives alms generously so he gives money to the poor and uh, he prayed continually to God this is a non-Jewish guy remember This is a Gentile. This is a Roman, actually. This is like the hated people. These are the occupying force. And yet we're told he's a devout man. We're told he gives to the poor. We're told he uh, gives generously to them. And he prays continually to the God of Israel. Now, we could just skip over that straight away, couldn't we? But why does Luke, and we'll come back to this, why does Luke almost go to the trouble of saying these things about Cornelius? Surely he could just say there was a Roman man called Cornelius who lived in Caesarea, right? So there must be something in the fact that he actually gives a bit of a character description of what this man is like. That he's a God-fearer, that he gives generously to the poor. I just want you to hold on to that. Hold on to that idea of why. Why would the description be given? Because we'll come to it a little bit later on. Remember, he's a Roman, he's an outsider. The image I get, because he wouldn't be going into the synagogue, generally, the image I get is almost like a, a kid at a sweet shop, that he'd be, he'd be up against the glass and he'd have his nose pressed against the glass, trying to look in, trying to get an idea of what's going on. He's obviously seen something in this God of Israel. He's praying to this God continually. That's not necessarily normal for a Roman citizen to be doing. He looks like a great guy, doesn't he? He's devout, he's God-fearing. In many senses, we might say he looks like what a Christian should be, right? Someone that gives generously, someone that fears God, someone that prays continually. However, he's actually on the outside and he's not in at all. 
Anyway, the story goes, he meets an angel, which doesn't happen generally to people. And the angel, interestingly, says God has remembered him. So God has taken note of his sacrifice. God has taken note of the fact that he's been fearing him. The, the, the kind of language is that God has remembered. That it hasn't all been a waste of time. That his devoutness towards God, that his praying continually, hasn't actually fallen on deaf ears. And this angel gives him a set of bizarre instructions to go and find this man called Peter, uh, who he would have probably heard of because he's quite a famous apostle. If you think Peter was the one who spoke at Pentecost and thousands of people were converted, Peter would have a bit of a reputation. I mean, just in the previous chapter, he's raising the dead. You know, if I went from here today and started raising the dead in Chesterfield this afternoon, you'd hear about it. People would hear it and be like, oh, there's that Dan Gower guy, I've heard of him. People would have heard of the Apostle Peter. And meanwhile, this is what's going on. It's in Joppa. It's about 30 miles away from Caesarea's. And obviously, they don't have the car, so they've got to go on a hike, and it'd be a hike along the coast. Now, if anyone's into walking, you know, coastal walks, they're pretty. And they're nice to look at, but they're, they're not flat, are they? Generally. And so it's a 30 mile, it's a bit of a trek for uh, the centurion's kind of staff that he sends to go and get Peter. So whilst he's sent his people, this is what's going on. Peter goes up onto a housetop about the sixth hour to pray. They would have flat roofs, just in case you're wondering how's he got on the roof and is he, is he kind of slanted. The roof would be flat. And he became hungry and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. Don't get caught up on the word trance. It's later described as vision. So he has a vision. It's just the word that's used in this translation. And he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descended, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air and there came a voice an audible voice that was God's and spoke and said rise Peter kill and eat and that's a really significant vision as we'll see but I kind of think like every bloke ever he's, he's gone up to pray and he's closed his eyes and he's hungry and then he has a vision of food I'm not surprised, but at the same time, it is definitely a supernatural thing. It's not just, I mean, this happens to me all the time. You know, you go past a burger van and that smell just, in that, anybody else, just me? In that moment, you're just like, oh, I would just love another burger right now. This happened to me yesterday. I had a burger, then I wanted a cookie, and then I wanted pizza. I just, just wanted to keep on eating. So Peter's hungry, but he goes up on the roof and he has a vision of food. But it's not just because he's hungry that he has it. It's because actually God's revealing something to him in it. He has a vision from God. It's not a made-up daydream. It's not just wishful thinking that he's hungry and so starts seeing McDonald's in his mind. This is a vision from God with a sheet that is let down from heaven from all the corners of the earth. The picture is everything in the earth, everything that I have... God is saying, from this corner to this corner, it encompasses it all, and then there's every type of animal and reptile and bird in this sheet, and God says, rise, Peter, get up, get in there, go and kill and eat. And Peter's obviously a Jewish boy, and he's a good Jewish boy. So he says, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times. God has to say to Peter, who's this, an apostle who's just seen the dead raised, God has to say it three times to him. 
How many times does God have to say to us to do something? Probably numerous. And we've got to kind of start listening to his voice and responding, I think. But here, this happened three times, and the thing was then taken up to heaven at once. And to give you a bit of an idea of what's going on and the significance of what's going on here, um, in Leviticus chapter 11, there's this long list that's given to God, to um, Moses and Aaron. And in this list, it outlines a list of animals, essentially, and reptiles and birds and fish of the sea, some of which are clean, which means you are able to eat them, and some of which are unclean, that you can't touch if you're Jewish. And the whole idea is that there are certain foods you can eat, and it's okay, but there's certain foods that you can't. And the point is not because you're on a diet or you're vegetarian, but it's you'll look different to the rest of the world. The rest of the world is eating porky pig, you therefore are not going to. And there's this tremendous list of animals that are given, and there's reasons why they've got to have a certain type of hoof, and they chew the cud, and if they do both those things, then they're clean, you can eat them. But if they only do one or the other, then you can't. So you can't eat a camel, for example, if you're Jewish. You can't eat a rock badger. I had to have a look up on Google what a rock badger looked like. It looks like a rat slash mole. You wouldn't want to eat one, I don't think. You're not allowed to eat a little owl or a tawny owl, or a falcon of any kind, um, or a vulture, or there's this whole long list, mole rats, chameleons, if you can find them. You're not allowed to eat all of these things. And, and, and of course, famously, pigs as well. That's the one that we tend to remember, isn't it? They, they can't eat pigs. But there's loads of things that they can't eat. And I kind of think it must have been really difficult for them to order food. You know, they must have had, like, you know, Jewish-only menus, and you can have this and this, and that's it. It must have been really boring, I think, with what they were eating. But the, the point is that all these creatures, the unclean ones and the clean ones, so the camel's there. And Peter's still told, rise, go and eat it. And that's significant in uh, his thinking. It's not just as well, it's more than just the animals that would be unclean. If you went and, uh, say you went to the zoo and you were to pet a camel, I'm not sure you do that really, but if you were going to do that, you would then be unclean because you've touched an unclean animal. It wasn't just eating them. It also says in Leviticus 11 that if a piece of wood were to fall on top of a camel, then that piece of wood would be unclean. So if you touch the piece of wood that touched the camel, you are unclean too. It's a bit complicated. <laughs> there was lots of rules and lots of lists of things that they couldn't do in order to make them set apart and different, to make them distinct, to make them special. It wasn't just God was being fussy. It was he wanted to display this group of people, this Israel, to the world. And in order to do that, they have to look different to the world. And is that not the case with our faith in Christ? If we looked exactly the same as the world, what are we actually offering? Now, I'm not saying that we have these are like food laws, as we'll see, thankfully, we can eat whatever we want. But there is something that says we're supposed to be distinct. There's something unique and something uh, different about those that are in relationship with God. And the whole point was that Israel wanted to be in God's presence. And to be in God's presence, they had to follow these things. And God says at the end of Leviticus 11, all these things that you're doing, all these uh, rules and regulations are because I want you to be holy because I am holy. I want you to be set apart because I'm set apart. And so that's the thinking of uh, Leviticus 11. And it's just God's people being distinct. Now, if you're a little bit confused as to why there'd be a sheet and animals, so was Peter. It says in our passage that Peter was inwardly perplexed. 
Peter's like, all my life I've not been eating these things and all of a sudden, in a moment, God says, I can go and eat them. He's a bit confused by it. But then, as he's still inwardly perplexed, good word, inwardly struggling with what it means, men arrive. And these men are not Jewish men. These men would be classed as unclean men from a Jewish point of view. And I kind of think, is that a coincidence? That as soon as he snaps out, as soon as he's kind of inwardly perplexed, all of a sudden these Gentiles turn up that are looking for him, that are asking him to come and be with them. You know when things happen in our lives and we think, oh, it's just a coincidence. I'm more inclined to think that God's been engineering and planning at it and we're only just realising what he's done. I mean, this is a story I may have told you before, but the day that I proposed to Grace was a day that we got mugged and I'd been going around with a camera really subtly you know taking photos going oh isn't this a special day taking lots of photos saying things like um, taking videos saying so what do you remember from this special day Grace you know because we were on holiday so it was special I was really subtle Um, and that was you know all the time I was kind of going oh god you know is this the right thing to do should I propose because I tell you man it's it's pretty nerve-wracking isn't it you know what if she says no Well, she didn't actually say yes, but we'll get to that. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, so I've been taking all these photos. And uh, we were were in Riga, Latvia, by the way, and there's lots of these gypsy women in Riga, Latvia, and they're organised by, like, these dons, thinking like kind of good fellas. And they're kind of, you know, organising these women to steal stuff from vulnerable tourists like us. And that's what happened. We crossed the road. I, uh, out the corner of my eye, some, saw some hand come out of my bag and we got to the other side of the road and our camera's gone and all this uh, camera, sunglasses, fortunately not passports and things. But I was like, oh, all those memories, all those photos, all that hard work and subtlety that I put in has just been completely wasted. And you know what, I tell you, you don't want to propose to someone on the day that you've been mugged, on the day that you've had your stuff stolen. It just doesn't work. And so we're like completely stunned. We don't even have time to pray and say, God, what is going on? I'm just like, oh, this is rubbish. And then one of these gypsy women comes up to us holding Grace's camera, holding Grace's sunglasses and presents it back to us. I'm like, you're the same woman that just nicked it from us and you're giving it... Maybe they thought it's a rubbish camera. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. Or look at these photos, they're rubbish. But we spoke to our Latvian friends and that doesn't happen. Whatever they take from you, they keep and they sell on and what they do is you know so one woman's got it she nicks it and then she passes it to a mate who passes it to a mate and then it's gone before you know it and yet for the first time ever it seems in the whole of Riga's history some thieves gave back what they had stolen and in that moment I thought was that a coincidence I thought no it can't be a coincidence and here's the same with Peter it can't be a coincidence that he's had this vision of what's clean and unclean and then some unclean people in his eyes turn up now, if we were taking it literally, we might go, oh, so Peter might go and kill these men because he's been told to rise, go eat and kill. <laughs> but fortunately, Peter's got a bit of common sense and applies it in a metaphorical way. But at some point, from that moment when they turn up to the moment he arrives at Cornelius's house, Peter has understood, fortunately for us, what the vision means. He says this in verse 28 of chapter 10. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Do you see what he's done there? God's given him a vision of all these things that are some 
are clean and some are unclean. And he said, it's all for you. I give, it, I give myself and I allow you to have it all. And what he's done is he's gone, okay, this vision actually means that all people, God is for all people. He's no longer just for uh, me as a Jew, but he's for the Gentiles as well. He's for those that previously were common and unclean in the eyes of a Jew. I mean, the first level is, it's on two levels, that's the second level really. The first level is that the food laws are no longer a measure of how to be holy. Which is great news because I love lobster firmador. Don't we love lobster? Brilliant food. If you don't love it, try it. It's Mother's Day. Treat your mum. It's really cheap, honestly. If you ever want to make me happy, buy me some lobster. Beautiful food. We're allowed to eat it. It's great. We're not restricted on what we can and cannot eat anymore. And neither actually was Peter. He had in this moment learned that by not eating these foods, it would be okay. Previously, if he'd eaten pig, he'd have been unclean before God. But now he can eat as much porky pig as he wants and it's okay. So he's thankful for bacon, probably. But it's more than that. It's the sacrificial system. It's the temple. It's the attendance of temple. It's circumcision. All these things are no longer required by God to make someone holy and right before him. And that's significant. If you read through the whole Bible story, it's always been those that bring me sacrifice, those that are circumcised, those that only eat certain foods. But all of a sudden, God said, no, actually it's developed and changed now. That's gone. That was for a time and a season, but there's something new and better. That's the kind of immediate one. And then the the second level is what I said, is how he applies it to human beings. I mean, the Jews and the Gentiles, they hated each other. And I mean hated each other. The Jews would be full of it. We're the chosen people of God. We're wonderful. You're not. They would look at the Gentiles and be like, you're the scum of the earth. You're the dogs. You don't deserve the crumbs off our table. That's what it would be like. And the Gentiles would obviously resent them for it. You know, if someone's calling me a dog, I'm not going to be too happy about it. The Gentiles then in turn were like, well, you guys are just posh. You guys won't even eat pork, the cheapest meat. You're just posh, stuck up, you think you're all that and you're not. There was real kind of cultural and racial tensions actually between the Jews and the Gentiles. Why, Peter says, it's not acceptable for me to be in your house. We can't hang out, we can't be friends, we can't eat together. It's a little bit like, um, I kind of think of this, we were in the UAE last year on holiday because our uncle lived there before he got kicked out of the country. I hope he doesn't see this actually, I shouldn't have said that. Um, He's a good guy, he didn't do anything wrong. A Christian guy. And um, Evangeline was just playing on this grass and this little little lad from the UAE came over and started playing with Evangeline. But the the mum came over and like, it was awful wasn't it? It was like grabbed him and like flung him across the, the grass and started shouting something in Arabic. I don't know what it was, but probably, you get away from that evil little horrible girl who's terrible and playing cars with you. You don't mix. Just as the Jews and the Gentiles, they didn't mix. You couldn't do that. 
It would be terrible. My children can't hang out with your children. We're just not friends. We hate each other. That's the culture. That's what's going on. And yet Peter here has understood the vision and is in Cornelius' house. He actually, if you read, he, he actually has these people that visit him in his own house or Simon the Tanner's house. That would be unlawful as well in the eyes of Judaism. But now, what was unlawful is lawful for him. God says in the vision, do not call something common which I call clean. In other words, what this whole passage means is this. There is no distinction anymore before God. For all of humanity. There's no distinction as to who can be holy. As to who can have relationship with him. It's no longer just the Jews. You know, there's some Christians, in inverted commas, that do the whole Jewish thing and go a bit Jewish crazy. What are they doing? It's unnecessary. We don't need to keep the festivals. We don't need to keep the food laws. They need to read Acts chapter 10. And we're not to resent those people, we're just to show them a better way. But the whole point of this is, there's no Jew or Gentile anymore as to who can be holy. Free and slave can come before God. Black and white, male and female, rich and poor, British, French, it doesn't matter. If you are a human being, if you are an image bearer, you can be welcomed by God. And we don't have to eat certain things and we don't have to do certain things in order to attain that. And it just made me think, if all are welcome before him, all are welcome before God. Think about that. Every stereotype person you think of in Chesterfield, all of them are welcome before a holy God. Why are our churches less welcoming? Why, if God welcomes them, do we not? Surely, our churches should be a picture of every tribe, tongue, nation, people group. They should be short, tall, fat, thin, everything. It should all be there, old, young, should be represented within God's people. Because God is for all people. Even for those people that don't think they fit in in society or we look at someone and we go, oh, well, they wouldn't fit in at church. Yes, they would. Because God wants them to. Because God wants to welcome them. And so we welcome them too. You know, all these barriers that we put up, actually, this verse tells us, this chapter tells us, they're gone. They shouldn't exist anymore. There shouldn't be barriers to the welcome of people being welcomed into the presence of God. And often it's the church that puts barriers up, not God. God's removed them in Christ. And he's given a really obvious and real way for us to be saved. And the church puts up barriers and says, well, you, you can't come in if you've got a tattoo on your face. That's just not what we like. You're not allowed in. Oh, I'm sorry. What, you, oh, you know, you're not, you can't come in. You've never been to church before. Or you can't take that, you can't do this, you can't sit on the front row. You're not wearing robes. I remember I was in a C of E thing, uh, in a chapel, and I had to hold something. I can't remember what it was, some sort of ball or something. A bit of a nonsense. Um, but I couldn't take communion, because I wasn't Anglican. Born again Christian, but I can't take communion. I was a bit annoyed about that. I need to get over it. But it's a barrier, isn't it? They're saying, well, you're not welcome at God's table, but God said you are. Now I tell you what, what should we be doing? We should be going with what God says. Which means actually sometimes getting past our own prejudices. Getting past our own uncomfortableness with people that are not like us. We're really happy when with people that are just like us, aren't we? But what about the people that are not like us? 
They're welcomed by God too. <coughs> I always take it as a compliment if that happens. If I send people to sleep, I'm obviously on fire. <laughs> These people are not projects, but they're people that God wants to welcome. And so I think we have to extend the same welcome that God gives to us. You see, these barriers of food laws and all this kind of stuff are broken down in order to reveal something greater to us. People are laughing because, oh dear, I'm going to lose it if people carry on laughing. But you see it, like, you see it on, like, if the internet is a kind of um, really small kind of uh, representation of what the world is like, the Christian church is not welcoming with what you see, arguments and people uh, arguing about this and that and different doctrinal things to the point where people aren't welcomed and we forget what the most important thing is. The most important thing for us is not the secondary issues of what our worship looks like or how we sit or um, I don't know whether I read the whole of the passage or not or how we do baptism or anything like that. The most important thing is Are we as welcoming as the God who welcomes people? Are we thinking of those that are outside of our context? Are we thinking of how can these people meet Jesus? And how can we be a community that shows and points people towards him? Not puts up barriers and hindrances to people finding Christ. The story continues on for us. uh, And this is interesting. I'm going to talk about this next week. So if you're here next week, uh, I'll take it as a compliment. Verse 19, and while Peter was pondering the, uh, the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And this is what I want to look at next week. Uh, if you're clocking that, I don't know if you've kind of picked up on what I've just said. The passage here says, the Spirit said to him. God the Holy Spirit spoke to Peter. Has a voice has an input in our life. Often, we think of God the Father, don't we? White beard, big, Zeus-like. If we create an image in our mind. We think of the Son, you know, for some reason he's white, not Middle Eastern. But he's got a beard, and he's got sandals, and he's got a long rope. And then the Spirit, we're like, uh, don't know, really? Just this? The Spirit speaks. The Spirit is a person, not a thing. And so what I want to look at next week is, how do we respond to God the Holy Spirit? How do we listen to the Spirit of God? Because Peter does here, and we always have a choice when God speaks to us through his word or by his spirit, don't we? Doing nothing, if God says do something, is a response. If God says go and we choose not to, that's a response, isn't it? We're, we're choosing actually to disobey God, but... Every choice we have, there is a response and we choose whether we are going to grieve God the Holy Spirit or follow after him. And there'll be more on that next week. On verse 33, Cornelius says, Therefore we're all here in the presence of God. So Peter turns up and he says, Now, now you're here, therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter goes on to explain the good news of Jesus, explain all that he's been commanded to share. But again, and this is just another side thing to think about, it's interesting that Cornelius says, now therefore we're all here in the presence of God. The implication is, were they not in the presence of God beforehand? I mean, one of the things that we do, I think, wrongly in churches sometimes is when we say, oh, where two or three are gathered, then, you know, God's there. The implication of that is God's not there if you're by yourself. That's not quite true, is it? 
that's not biblical and how it hangs together. Those verses are actually uh, for when there's kind of conflict. And it says, well, in your conflict, in your resolution to set things right, I'll be there with you. Normally, when there's a conflict, there's more than one person. Two or more are gathered. Don't have to tend to have many arguments with yourself, do you? Um, well, I don't. Some of you might. It's, the whole point is, well, was, where was God's presence? What is it that has ushered God's presence into this situation? And I think it's obedience to the Spirit, which is why we kind of want to look at that next week. When we follow after, when we do as God bids us, I've said this before, stuff happens. God shows up. Some of the most poignant points in my life and my walk with God have been when I've stepped out in faith and obeyed Him. And done things that seem ridiculous at the time, and God's met me in that place. It's almost as if um, when there's that situation where uh, walking on water, and God says, well, you've got to take that step of faith and get out of the boat. And often we kind of stay in the boat. But when we get out of the boat, stuff happens. When faith is exercised, God meets us in that place. So we'll look at that a little bit more, I think, next week. But for Peter, I want you to understand, for Peter, it's a step of faith, even being in Cornelius' house. Much like for us, going to, think of someone that is the complete opposite of you. Think of someone who you would not want to hang out with, not want to spend time with, and you go to their house to share the gospel with them. That's what Peter's doing. That's the kind of situation I want you to put yourself in. And actually, that's the very situation we should be putting ourselves in. Have you thought about that? Those very people that you think, oh, crumbs are the very people that need to know about Jesus. They're the very people that aren't going to hear about Jesus unless we're the ones that go and take him to him. Does that make sense? Hopefully. It does in my mind anyway. Peter's taken a risk. Verse 34 and 35, he opens his mouth and says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And it's a really intriguing opening sentence here, and we could read this in completely the wrong way. And actually, lots of people do read this in completely the wrong way, that they say that Cornelius, because here Peter says, Cornelius was a God-fearer, therefore Cornelius was already acceptable to God. And what they interpret acceptable meaning as he was already saved, he was already right with him. But my answer to that is, if that's the case, if Cornelius as a God-fearer in Caesarea was already saved and quite happy and right with God, why did the angel come and why did Peter need to go to him? He didn't. So it's therefore, the word acceptable cannot mean right with God. Because it just doesn't hang together. It doesn't mean Cornelius was already saved. This is not an argument which it can be made from Acts chapter 10. This is not an argument for good deeds will save you. They will not. Good deeds are to be encouraged, but if all you have is good deeds, then we're going to wind up in hell. We're not going to have eternal life with Jesus Christ. Peter was needed to come, and it was something that Peter brought to him that changed the situation. What he means when he says God fears and people can be acceptable to God is the same as his vision. What he means is there's no partiality. People who are non-Jew can now become acceptable to God. People who are non-Jew can be welcomed before God. That's the point of what he's saying. Every tribe, tongue and nation is welcome to the grace of God. And that's why, I said this at the start, that is why Luke goes to great lengths to describe the character of Cornelius. He's making the point that God-fearing, that praying ceaselessly, that um, giving generously will not save you. 
No matter how good you are, it's not good enough. How good is good enough? It's a good question, isn't it? The answer is not. There's only one person who was good enough. And his name's Jesus. And that's why we sing to him, and that's why we praise him. Cornelius is a God-fearer. And this is why Peter changes it from just, uh, well, that's not enough to death and resurrection. And he says this, God commanded us, speaking about the apostles, to preach to the people and to testify that Jesus, he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. Have you ever met someone that's got one of those tattoos that says, only God can judge me? And it's often like really scrawny and badly done. They're kind of right, but they've got it there for the wrong reasons. They've got it there that they can justify however they want to live. Only God can judge me, so you can't stop me from doing whatever I want to do. In it. <laughs> Probably. But actually, it's not quite right. Yes, okay, only God can judge me, but do we really want the judgment of God? In that sense? That's a scary thought, actually. Often it's used as a get-out, but Peter says, actually, what matters is not what I think of you or what you think of me, but our standing with God is what matters. It's Jesus who will judge both the living and the dead. It's Jesus' life and death and faith in him that dictates whether we are in the land of the living or the land of death. That's what he's saying. It's Jesus that makes the difference. It's not whether I eat lobster or not. It's whether I have faith in Christ or not. If I have faith in Christ, I'm saved and will be eternally. If I don't, I won't. That's the gospel. Do I believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who died for me, was raised to new life for me, and by believing in him I will have everlasting life? Am I trusting Jesus to take my sin and destroy it so that I am made right before God? If the answer is yes, you will spend eternity with Jesus. If the answer is I don't know or no, you won't. It's really straightforward, actually. That's what I love about the gospel, the good news of Jesus. It's good news, and it's really straightforward for us. Have we repented? Have we turned around or not? Peter finishes his little message with this verse. To him all the prophets bear witness, which basically means the whole of the Bible story bears witness to Jesus Christ. That everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone who... You see that word everyone in there again? There's this no partiality. You've got the Roman centurion, the worst of the worst in the eyes of the Jews. And now everyone, everyone everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone. Peter as he was, as a Jewish man that was struggling with the Gentiles. Well, if he repented of his sin and asked for forgiveness, he could be saved. For Cornelius, the Gentile, the one far off from God, not one of God's chosen people, didn't matter anymore. If he repented of his sin and asked for forgiveness, he could be saved. And he is. And we'll look at that a little bit next week as uh, they're baptised in the Spirit. They start speaking in tongues. This whole family starts speaking in tongues. And then following on from that, they're baptised in water as well. You see, this is why our message is so urgent. There's lots of people, I believe, particularly in the UK and our culture, that are leading very good lives. They might be leading God-fearing lives. They might pray. But we know it's not enough. 
And if we know it's not enough, what are we going to do about it? We've got a responsibility to do something about that, just as Peter did with Cornelius and his family. You see, God doesn't just accept us as we are, does he, actually? He welcomes us as we are, as wretched, as sinful, and he beckons us to change. And in that moment when we repent, we are changed. And in that, it's in that repentance that we become acceptable to him. In that repentance, we become clean. And we can be holy because he is holy. You see, responding to God will always mean change. You know, the world is telling us that people just need to be tolerated. You know, different people groups that, you know, people don't, you know, that as Christians we should tolerate and that's it. Or that God tolerates it. But God doesn't give toleration. And you know what? These people don't want to just be tolerated. They want to be welcomed. They want to change. They want to know forgiveness. They want to know love. They want to know grace. They want to know healing and transformation. They don't want our tolerance. They want our welcome. Actually, they want our Jesus. So, for us practically today, it means this, and this is a lot harder than it sounds, and I've actually fulfilled it in my own sermon, so I need to apply this to myself as well, because I did a stupid impression. It means drop the prejudice, doesn't it? Because often we put up the barriers that then stop us being able to communicate and associate. I think it means believing that people can change, that they're not too far gone, they're not lost. It means being salt and light in the difficult places. At work, that's often difficult, isn't it? When people know you're a Christian, but it means being salt and light. It means displaying to them the love of Jesus. So that our churches are full of every tribe, tongue, nation. With people that have loads of stories of redemption. Loads of stories of this is who I was and this is who I've become. Because this special relationship with God is for every single person here this morning. Not just for if you're Jewish or you're British. He welcomes all in the name of Jesus. And this is what awaits us. This is from Peter's letter. He says, of all people who have faith in Christ, that you are now a chosen race that you are now a royal priesthood that you are now a holy nation that you are a people for God's own possession that in order that we can proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light once you were not a people which is definitely true for us but now you're God's people once you hadn't received mercy but now you've received mercy and that's why what was talking about this morning in Acts 10 is one of our values has to be that we're welcoming. And it's not just a handshake at the door. It's, I think, the challenge is, there's probably people within this room who you don't know so well. Let's stop talking to the people that we know really well and get to know the people that we know less well. That's a small, practical way that we can do it, isn't it? A really small way, which might mean the world for someone who just wants to be welcomed, who just wants to know the love of God. You know, my hope and prayer is that obviously, you know, we'll fill this room and then we'll move somewhere else because this ain't big enough. There's gonna, that means lots more people from lots of different backgrounds and lots of different stories and lots of different places. And God welcomes them. So God's people should too.